Well, thank you, Dr. Prigwald. Uh, just a little check here. Can you hear me? Okay. I want to make sure I get heard. No one will ever, in the church anyway, will ever be upset at you if you speak too loudly. We heard that in, in seminary. But you'll always hear the little ladies will say, I didn't hear Father, so he needs to speak up some. So I'll try and project and make sure you can hear me. Um, you know, in the beginning of the book, Prince Caspian, it's one of those chronicles of Narnia that uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, there is a, a marvelous story of what happens to them. And if you're not familiar with it, allow me to kind of bring it and open it up to you a little bit. You've got four kids by the names of Peter, Edmund, Lucy, and Susan. And they're people of England, kids. And in the book Prince Caspian, they're waiting at the bus stop. And all of a sudden, they feel the magic happening, and they find themselves in a foreign land. And they're a little distressed at what they see. And they start to look around, and they discover they're on an island. And on this island, they discover runes. Runes of an old, old castle. And as they look around a, a little bit more, it becomes somewhat familiar to them. And if you're familiar with their story, you realize that these four used to be kings and queens in a land called Narnia. And so, to fill you in, for those of you who are unfamiliar, and to help you enjoy something that is familiar to those who are um, acquainted with this, I'm going to read to you a, a fairly lengthy section of this book, Prince Caspian. Um, I'm going to omit a few things, though. Allow me to find my spot. This is a chapter titled, Ancient Treasure House. This wasn't a garden, said Susan presently. It was a castle, and this must have been the courtyard. I see what you mean, said Peter. Yes, that is the remains of a tower. And there is what used to be a flight of steps going up to the top of the walls. Look at those other steps, the broad, shallow ones going up to that doorway. Must have been the door into a great hall. Ages ago, by the look of it, said Edmund. Yes, ages ago, said Peter. I wish we could find out who the people were that lived in this castle and how long ago. Gives me a queer feeling, said Lucy. Does it, Lou? said Peter, turning and looking hard at her. Because it does the same to me. It's the queerest thing that has happened this queer day. I wonder where we are and what it all means. While they were talking, they had crossed the courtyard and gone through the other doorway into what had once been the hall. This was now very like the courtyard, for the roof had long since disappeared and it was merely another space of grass and daisies, except that it was shorter and narrower, and the walls were higher. Across the far end, there was a kind of terrace, about three feet higher than the rest. I wonder, was it really a hall? said Susan. What is that terrace kind of thing? Why, you silly, said Peter, who had become strangely excited. 
Don't you see? That was the dais where the high table was, where the king and the great lord sat. Anyone would think you had forgotten that we ourselves were once kings and queens and sat on a dais, just like that, in our great hall. In our castle of Caraparavel, continued Susan in a dreamy and rather sing-song voice, at the mouth of the great river of Narnia, how could I forget? How it all comes back, said Lucy. We could pretend that we were in Caraparavel now. This fee, this hall must have been very like that great hall we feasted in. Fast forward a little bit. Now, said Peter, in a quite different voice, it's about the time of us, the four of us, started using our brains. What about, asked Edmund, have none of you guessed where we are, said Peter. Go on, go on, said Lucy. I felt for hours that there was some wonderful mystery hanging over this place. Fire ahead, Peter, said Edmund. We're all listening. We are in the ruins of Caraparavel itself. Then he goes on. He says, I know, said Peter, but this is different. Let's leave that out for the moment. I want to make the points one by one, Edmund. This hall is exactly the same shape and size as the hall at Caraparavel. Just picture a roof on it and a colored pavement instead of grass and tapestries on the walls and you get a royal banqueting hall. No one said anything. Second point, continued Peter. The castle, wall is, the castle well is exactly where our well was, a little to the south of the great hall, and it is exactly the same size and shape. Again, there was no reply. Third point, Susan has just found one of our old chessmen, or something as like one of them as two peas. Still, nobody answered. Fourth point, don't you remember? It was the very day before the ambassadors came from the king of the Kalormen. Don't you remember planting the orchard outside the north gate of Caraparavel? The greatest of all the wood people, Pomona herself, came to put good spells on it. It was those very decent little chaps, the moles, who did the actual digging. Can you have forgotten that funny old lily gloves, the chief mole leaning on his spade and saying, Believe me, your majesty, you'll be glad of these fruit trees one day. By Jove, he was right. I do, I do, said Lucy, and clapped her hands. But look here, Peter, this must be all rot. To begin with, we didn't plant the orchard slap up against the gate. We wouldn't have been such fools. No, of course not, said Peter, but it has grown up to the gate since. And for another thing, said Edmund, Caraparavel wasn't on an island. Yes, I've been wondering about that. But it was a, what do you call it, a peninsula. Jolly nearly an island. Couldn't it have been made an island since our time? But half a moment, said Edmund, you have been saying, since our time. 
but it's only a year ago since we left, since we came back from Narnia. And it goes on. And they go on to find, to talking about a treasure house. This is actually very important for my talk. And they go on to find the door to this ancient treasure house, and they go in. And they say, and Lewis continues, For now all knew, that's the four of them, that it was indeed the ancient treasure chamber of Caerparavel, where they had once reigned as kings and queens of Narnia. There was a kind of path up the middle, as it might be in a greenhouse, and along each side, at intervals, stood suits of armor, like knights guarding the treasures. In between the suits of armor, and on each side of the path, were shelves covered with precious things, necklaces and arm rings and finger rings and golden bowls and dishes and long tusks of ivory, brooches and coronets and chains of gold and heaps of unset stones lying piled anyhow as if they were marbles or potatoes. But diamonds, rubies, carbuncles, emeralds, topazes and amethysts, under the shelves stood great chests of oak, strengthened with iron bow bars and heavily padlocked. There was something sad and a little frightening about the place, because it all seemed so forsaken and long ago. That was why nobody said anything for at least a minute. This evening, I propose that we are in a spiritual war and that some people today have forgotten where they're at, that they are walking wounded, while others of us are just beginning to realize that we're in the battle. And then, like the good kings and queens of Narnia, realize our treasure house and the weapons it contains. That's the main point. I think sometimes we have forgotten exactly where we're at and how we can get to our goal. And I think sometimes we have not only lost our weapons, but they've become damaged because they've been so lost. And that we really are at a war and we need some help in figuring out how to get through. That's what I'd hopefully like us to get through today. I have my watch. I've gotten halfway through the first page in 15 minutes. I've got five pages. <laughs> so either we're going to be here a long time, or I'm going to be doing some rapid shopping. But I am grateful for Dr. Peter, Peter Kreeft in his talk on how to win the culture war and it's accessible at his official Peter Kreeft website as an audio. It's a wonderful talk. If you've got an MP3 player or an iPod, go and download it, listen to it. It's uh, really fabulous. And so I propose to move into kind of the body of this, to know that we are at war. Sometimes we're asleep. And in case you've been asleep for many years, like Rip Van Winkle, I hope this isn't too much of a shock, 
coming to wake up and discover where you're at. You are at war. And you may be feeling a little bit like a Marine at Chichijima. Story goes of a Marine chaplain was out in, this is World War II now, Pacific Theater, and he's out giving the prayers of the dead over the bodies near the hospital. Kind of a makeshift quick hospital there at Chichijima, the old airbase. And he's, as he's praying over one of the soldiers, he must have touched him for some part of the ritual. And the man stirred, moved. You can just imagine this Marine chaplain hightailing it back to the hospital. You know, my prayers woke the dead. My prayers woke the dead. And they come to find out the man had been very badly wounded, but he wasn't dead. And he went on to live. You know, it's been a long time since some of us were really roused and awakened. And we come to realize that now that we're aroused and awakened, we are in the middle of a war with its many battles. So I hope that if you have been awakened, you have been fighting this, that it'll be a good morale booster for you, a good encouragement. So if we are at war, what is it that we are fighting? And so one of the great needs in battle is reconnaissance. You know, if you're in a battle, you've got to know where you're at, where you want to go, and what you've got to get to get through there. And so this is a culture war that we're in, and we're right in the middle of it. And where we want to go is not out of it, but to transform it. And that's so very important. You know, here are some of our battles. The dignity of human fertility. You know, the Argus leader had an article on making babies in the, see here, I do a little advertiser for them, the March 8th issue of The Life, Health and Fitness. They had no mention of God. They had no mention of the, the unitive aspect where husbands and wives or even unmarried people come together in some semblance of love and give themselves to each other, and out of that it comes human life. Well, it's titled Making Babies. You know, fertility is one aspect of this culture war. You know, another, another battle is embryonic stem cell research. You know, we've disguised the destruction of life under the cover of scientific research. Um, we do subscribe to the Argus Leader down in Yankton, and uh, if you've been paying attention, our president did reverse the limits on embryonic stem cell research. If you want a little encouragement in the midst of it, read Kathleen Parker today. Obama misses the wedding of science and ethics. Really quite a good article. Um, we have also promoted this destruction of innocent life in the womb, as is the case when the Mexico City policy was reversed, by the cloak of health care reform for the poor. 
we have promoted the disunity of the pro-life movement under the concealment of tolerance and timing. So who is our enemy? Have we realized that we are at war? Well, one of the best things you can do when you're talking about something is to discuss what you're not talking about. So who is not our enemy? Now, if you've ever watched some of the new technology that's coming across, maybe Discovery Channel or, or, or something like that, you'll see that on the battlefield they have these, this wild new electronic technology that the commander can sit in his Humvee and, or in his command post, and he can look and he can see all these little dots. Blue dots are good guys, red dots are bad guys, and he knows the battlefield layout. He knows who's a good guy and who's evil. We don't have that privilege. Sometimes our enemy is not so easy to discover. And in this culture war that we're entangled in today, we have, you know, I think we have to not forget that we have a lot of good people doing wonderful works of spiritual and corporal works of mercy. Um, there's people that are doing halfway homes for expectant mothers. Rehabilitation for ex-convicts. And just even the simple kindnesses of neighbors being charitable to their neighbors. All saints on this battlefield building a civilization of love. Yet, I think there's numerous other people we might say are our enemies. We have the politicians who support anti-life agendas. We've got the lobbyists that introduce by influence legislation of reversing stem cell bans right here in our own state. We have out-of-state doctors who come in to perform abortions and kill our newest members of our society. And we have swindlers on a national level that bilk their people out of their life savings. Good, honest people. Now forced at the age of 90 to go back to work. You know, certainly all of these people and many others that I've listed and you can probably think of do contribute to the destruction of life in various ways and in degrees. But they're not our enemy. Let me repeat that so there's no confusion. They're not our enemy. They're in people in need of treatment in the hospital of the church. They are the walking wounded. So this brings up the topic of the hospital and the hotel. One of the great images for the church is a hospital. A hospital for sinners, not a hotel for saints. You know, Jesus said that the righteous do not need the physician, but the sick do. In fact, Jesus does not call the Pharisees and scribes and all others in Jerusalem his enemies. He invites them into his kingdom. He invites them to join his side. And so, 
with those who are sick, the walking wounded, there's a certain amount of paranoia among them. They think that we're out to get them and destroy them. And much like a psychiatric ward, the walking wounded are surrounded by those of like mind, not mentally ill, but spiritually ill. Now, while visiting the hospital recently, I came into the ICU ward, and talking with them, I discovered one of my patients, one of our parishioners was there, and I went to go anoint her, and they said, Father, don't wake her up. Okay. So I walked in, and very quietly prayed over her, anointed her, stepped out. And I noticed that as she was laying there, her hands were tied down to the bed. She wasn't restrained, and she woke up. She would be liable to hurt not only herself, but maybe those around her. The walking wounded resist healing. They fear the unknown. Kind of like children who you take in to the hospital to get their early childhood shots. You know, you can be the best mother, you can be the greatest father, you can be the most wonderful person that they trust implicitly without one shred of reservation. And the moment they see that needle and find out where it's going, they go nuts. And they, you, sometimes parents even have to hold their child so that the nurse can give them the shot. They fear the unknown. I think that's kind of like what happens with the walking wounded. So how do we bring healing to those who resist healing? You have heard that it was said, someone once said, love your enemy, love your neighbor, and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemy, and pray for those who persecute you. I think that's pretty well known, and you probably all know who said that. But, you know, love is the most powerful healing that can occur. By loving your enemies, St. Paul tells us that you will heap burning coals upon their head. The walking wounded need our love, and they need our consistency of heart. Paul phrased this consistency another way when he spoke to the Ephesians. He said, Therefore I, I too, hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love for all the holy ones, do not give a, cease giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, resulting in knowledge of him. And he goes on and he says, In Christ's power, for us who believe, in accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, 
the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Love is what will do the healing. And so we are the ones who preach the truth in love to the walking wounded. And not only by what we say, but by how we say it, and even more importantly, by the witness of our lives, how we live the truth. There's a great story from the prophet Zechariah. Then he showed me a Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, while Satan stood at his right hand to accuse him. And the angel of the Lord said to Satan, May the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a brand snatched from the fire? He goes on to describe how Joshua is clothed not in filthy garments, but in garments of great beauty and dignity. So we've come to it. Who is the enemy? And the enemy is none other than our age-old enemy, the age-old serpent, Satan, the devil. Call him what you will. He's real. He's active. Now, I forget who wrote it, but someone said that the greatest triumph of the devil in the modern age is to be unknown and forgotten. The devil wants our downfall because you know he, ha- you know he has a partner, us. Our fallen spirit our concupiscence, our disordered desires. And this is another lengthy quote. I'm on a kick of lengthy quotes today. John describes in the book of Revelation the enemy and the battle we're in the midst of. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels battled against the dragon. The dragon and its angels fought back, but they did not prevail. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. The huge dragon, the ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world, was thrown down to earth, and its angels were thrown down with it. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have salvation and power come, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his anointed. The accuser of our brothers is cast out, who accuses them before our God day and night. They conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. Love for life did not deter them from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell therein. But woe to you, earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great fury. For he knows he has but a short time. So how to defeat the enemy? The enemy knows his time is short, and he has been, and he will be, busy. So put on your armor. The best way to defeat our enemy is to start with our personal enemy, our fallen selves. You know, I think of the soldiers deployed in the Middle East. At the beginning of this conflict, they didn't have much body armor, and you even saw... These places that fabricated body armor, they just went boom town because 
family members are buying body armor to send over to their loved ones. And so the errant bullet or the, the random roadside bomb, the IED, uh, could really hurt them, could kill them. And now we find that as they're moving into a, a more mountainous region of conflict, that they have too much body armor, and that it limits their mobility and their speed to pursue the enemy. But we will never have that problem. St. Paul must have been on a battle kick to the Ephesians because he says, Therefore put on the armor of God, that you may be able to resist on the evil day, having done everything, to hold your ground. So stand fast with your loins girded in truth, clothed with righteousness as a breastplate, and your feet shod in readiness for the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, hold faith as a shield to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and supplication, pray at every opportunity in the Spirit. You can't get any better than St. Paul. You know, prayer, life of faith, the conversion of ourselves, and we become strong. You know, so Scripture is that preeminent weapon, the sword of the Spirit in defeating the devil. It's a wonderful tool, wonderful weapon. If you're not praying the scriptures, do so. But an interesting quote, and this might surprise you, the person I'm going to use, Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, had another recourse. And this is on the title to the screw tape letters. The best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of the scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. If you're going to mock the devil and say, hey, you got no power, man. Nice try. Jesus has got more. Um, and, and so, we're headed towards, where do we get that strength? The strength to be courageous enough to stand in the face of our enemy and laugh. To really just say, you've got nothing. And so, as we return to our original idea that, that this is a battlefield that they're in the midst of, and the church is our hospital for healing, it's also our castle, our bastion, our fort. It's our battleship in the midst of the sea. I remember right, let's see if I figure out who I quoted this from. It's Paul again. He said, May the eyes of your hearts be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call, or the riches of the glory in his inheritance among the holy ones. Sound a little bit like king and queens out of Narnia. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe, in accord with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead, 
and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things beneath his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Authorities, princedoms, powers, and thrones. There are other words for levels of the angelic beings. It's a spiritual battle we're in, remember? Remember who's over all of that? Christ himself. And remember who led him first? St. Michael led the press and kicking them out. So allow me to conclude. Perhaps you've had a chance to watch the HBO miniseries, The Band of Brothers. In The Band of Brothers, there's a gripping episode of the 101st Airborne, and The Band of Brothers really just follows the whole 101st Airborne from their time of being gathered together to deployment and then back again as the battle in the European front wears down. Now, the 101st Airborne are hunkered down in the frozen ground in the dead of winter, if I remember right, the Battle of the Bulge. They're being continually shelled. The trees are exploding above them, and all their movements are watched so that if they get far enough out, they can, the opposing army of the Germans can see that they're vulnerable and then give them the barrage right then kill as many of them as possible. Many of these soldiers would like to leave, but they don't, because they listen to Captain Winters. He guides them, and he directs them, and he cares for them when things are tough. And above all, he leads by example. I think He's a good type of a bishop. You know, if you go way back into the ancient history of our church, and you go to those church fathers that had connections with the apostles, you find one among them that's just good reading material, St. Ignatius of Antioch. And as he was on his journey from his diocese of Antioch, to Rome to be put on mock trial and then martyred, he wrote letters to his different churches. And in one of those letters, the letter to the Magnesians, Ignatius shows us where to look for our leadership. He says, Since therefore I have, in the persons before mentioned, beheld the whole multitude of you in faith and love, I exhort you to study, to do all things with a divine harmony, while your bishop presides in the place of God, and your presbyters as the priests. And your presbyters in the place of the assembly of the apostles, along with your deacons, who are most dear to me, and are entrusted with the ministry of Jesus Christ, as with the Father before the beginning of time 
and in the end was revealed. Do you all then imitate, imitating the same divine conduct, pay respect to one another, and let no one look upon his neighbor after the flesh, but do continually love each other in Christ Jesus? We are gathered around the bishop who presides in the place of God, and around our presbyters who are in the place of the assembly of the apostles, and the deacons who are most dear to Ignatius. You know, we're a motley crew. We're a motley band of brothers and sisters, but we're gathered in unity around our bishop. He's our leader. He helps guide us through this spiritual battle. Now, I promised at the beginning, I think, that we would regain the inheritance that is stored in the treasure house of our castle. The sacraments and prayer, both prayer that's private and prayer that's liturgical, is our inheritance, and they are our weapons. Have you got a wound that needs healing? Come to reconciliation. Christ the physician will heal your soul. Do you feel discouraged as the battle rages on, and it's just too hard, and you're not able to enter into the fray? Ask the Holy Spirit for courage, for knowledge and understanding. And take nourishment in the bread of life and the wine of inebriation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So if there's anything else I would say, it's this. Take courage. Be stout-hearted and wait for the Lord, for he is coming and he will not delay. Thank you. Thank you for your attention, and now if there's any questions that anyone has, I should raise your hand. Um, we got a special handheld mic. Your voice will be recorded for for all perpetuity. So, um, yeah, no pressure. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, there we go. We got one. And I'm going to move forward just a little bit because this is like church. All the good Catholics sit in the back. Well, um, I really enjoyed your talk. And what hit me the most is how you said, these people are not our enemies. We need to embrace them with love. How do you embrace them with love without becoming across as tolerant? Being, coming across as tolerant. That is a challenge. Because at some point in the conversation, you're probably going to be asked, well, we'll just agree to disagree. I can't remember who said it, but tolerance is not charity. Uh, tolerance comes from the Latin word uh, tolere, to, to bear. Well, if we're bearing something, that, that means it's not something of, of lightness, of goodness. So to say... Say, 
I still disagree with you. And I'm not just going to agree to disagree. I can't be that good of a friend to you and not want to come to some truth. It would be uncharitable of me. It would be unkind of me if I just wanted to just say, we're just going to have this underlying tension in our relationship. You know, I want us to be happy. I want us to be able to, to agree and be friends. And they're probably going to be able to reach a common term there. But you might say, although I don't have a good answer, and I understand you're kind of holding your point, you know, I'm going to pray for you, and I hope we'll talk about this at another time. That's what I would do. And, and then I would really pray for them by name daily. Um, I, I just had an image of, of, of something, and I, and I can't remember what it's from, but to really pray for them and then let the Lord work on them. Because at some point you come to an impasse and nothing really can be done. You know, and this is what came to mind, is that a man convinced of his opinion will not change his will. Okay? So if someone's got some opinion, they're gonna, not going to change the whole interior will. And your will is a very interesting thing. I don't want to go into it too much right here. Does that help? Okay. You know, you can still be friends with people, but, you know, in very honest conversations with people to realize, you know, we have divergent points here. But if we're really honest, we have to say there is one truth. Truth claims are often bring up hardships. Good evening, Father. Good evening. Thank you for your talk. You're welcome. Um, my question is a little bit broad. How should we deal with people that we care a lot about, but who have very different views from us? For example, my stepfather is a man I love dearly, mm. but he's very anti-Catholic, and... Um, very anti-Obama as well. Those two things don't necessarily go together. Okay. But, well. I mean, he says some, well, he says some, that, that's part two of my question. How should we deal with a president like Obama as Christians who disagree with his, with his worldview in, in a lot of areas? Um, anyway, so I guess a two-part question. How do you deal with people that you love who you just know are just wrong about a lot of things. And how do, you, how do we deal with a president like Obama um, as a leader of our country? I guess it was a broad question. Uh, thank you, Father. Uh, you're welcome. I hope you all heard the two-part question. How do we deal with people that we have difficulty with and are close to, and then how do we deal with our leadership? Um, case in point, president, current President Obama. Um, just celebrated the funeral for a woman uh, by the name of Louise Bates. Um, she was married to a married into a very anti-Catholic household. She was not Catholic herself. And her daughter tells a story that when she came and brought home her fiance, 
Or when she, her father just found out that her fiancé was Catholic, he was livid. He said, she said her dad never saw any of his grandchildren because they were Catholic. Now, yeah, we shake our heads and we say this is kind of shallow and wow. That's very real, though. And it's even close to home, right here, in our own Diocese of Sioux Falls. Um, the interesting point about this woman is that at age 76, she entered the Catholic Church. This woman's mother entered the Catholic Church. So, you know, I'm going to guess her mother was mid-40s when she got married. 30-some-odd years later, she comes into the Catholic Church. There's a certain amount of bearing the cross that, that comes in these relationships. And, and yet, you know, we have to heed Paul's example. Speak the truth in charity. So, they really say to him, well, I hear what you're saying. I think you're dead wrong on these areas. Uh, to allow him to get hot and bothered and upset and realize he's probably not hot and, hot and mad at you so much as he's hot and mad at seeing the, the internal contradiction of his own statements. And throwing in that seed of truth, let the Holy Spirit work on them. And then you wait, and you wait, and you wait. Imagine St. Monica and St. Augustine. Here's Augustine, you know, a beloved son. Um, she's Christian. He's waiting pretty much until his deathbed to become Christian. In the meantime, living it up. She prays and she prays and she prays for many years until he finally enters the church and he becomes this great bishop and leader in the Catholic Church. I don't envy your position of having to suffer for a long time. <laughs> But I, I think that's probably where you're at. Remember, a man convinced of his opinion will not change his will. Uh, you might also read some stuff by Scott Hahn. Scott Hahn used to be a very anti-Catholic, very uh, passionate uh, Calvinist. Uh, you know where he is now. Very large, leading apologist in the Catholic Church. You know, as for our president, we got to pray for our, all of our leaders Every single one of them. Those who are being strong. And those whom we really honestly say are not leading well. And not leading in ways that are um, promoting human dignity. And I, I think that, you know, you know, pray for President Obama. Write him letters. Um, but also stay in contact with your representatives and senators. You know, that's the great beauty of being in an American democracy. George Weigel, um, Archbishop Chaput have some good stuff on this. Um, George Weigel's Against the Grain book, Archbishop Chaput's Render Unto Caesar. It's a wonderful little snippet on politics for you if you just got some spare reading time. Um, But the wonderful thing about our Constitution is that it's there to protect the people from the government. And the remarkable thing about our government is that it is a system of checks and balances. 
it is a system that has room for discussion. Um, and by that I mean that the Congress, even if it might not be uh, a fully balanced Congress, is still Congress. It still represents us. Maybe not perfectly, uh, but it's been the best experiment so far. So use it. Use it. I think our president is a very articulate. I think he's a very knowledgeable man. But I do think he's, um, remember, he's probably one of the walking wounded. And I'm not sure that he's in a psychiatric ward, but you know he's surrounded by like minds. <laughs> surrounded by like minds, people who think the same. President Bush was the same way. He surrounded himself with like minds. You know, I think that's, you know, we all surround ourselves with like minds. So you've got a lot of people to pray for. Join me in praying for our leadership. Good question. Both of them. <laughs> Any others? Going once, going twice, three times we're done. All right. I have some prayers of St. Michael the Archangel. I'm not sure how many of you know that prayer. Raise your hand if you know the prayer of St. Michael. All right. Doing pretty good. I got some prayer cards from Human Life International. And we can either record this or sleep for later. Um, but I'd like to give you all one of these prayer cards and then pray it together with me. I do have some extras, so if you want to take a couple, that's perfectly fine with me. St. Michael, the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and the snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Amen. May Almighty God bless you all, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks. <laughs>